Well, this morning, after having studied the previous three churches of Pergamos, which was the compromised church, and then Thyatira, the Dark Ages paganized church, and then Sardis, which was the dead church, this morning it's rather refreshing to be able to now come to the study of the sixth Revelation church letter, which was written to the church of what? Philadelphia. This sixth church, if you remember, in our overview study of the seven churches, represents the missionary church, the church of the open door, the evangelistic church, which was the church of brotherly love. That's what the word Philadelphia means. It also prophetically represents the time in church history when the modern missionary movement really began and took off and great awakenings spiritual awakening swept over much of Europe and the British Isles and spread on into America. Philadelphia is a refreshing church to study because there is not one single word of accusation made by the Lord Jesus Christ against this church. And that is refreshing after some of the accusations that we've been looking at. This was only true of one other church. Who remembers which other church? Right, was only true of Smyrna, the persecuted church. So I believe that as we study the details about this church, the Philadelphia church, through the letter which Christ wrote to it by way of the Apostle John, who was there in exile on the Isle of Patmos at the end of the first century, I believe that as we study this church, we will find ourselves desiring not only to be affiliated with a Philadelphia type of church, you know, local church, but also to be a Philadelphia type of Christian as well. At least I hope this is true. I hope this is what we will be desiring because this is the ideal for which to strive because this is the church that had an evangelistic heartbeat. This was the church which had a world vision to reach the lost. Isn't it wonderful to know that little Savannah is doing so well? She's, how big is she now? 14, 13 pounds. Isn't that great when she was born at two? Praise the Lord. Well, as we dissect the verses that we'll be looking at, verses 7 to 13 of Revelation chapter 3, we're going to use our normal format that we've been using for all of these churches. First of all, we'll look at the details we know about the actual first century city of Philadelphia, then the known details about the church which existed there. Then we'll look at the salutation description that Christ gives of himself to this letter, to these Christians. And then we'll look at the bulk of the letter, which is the declaration from Christ. So that's our format. So let's begin by discussing the details about the city. The name Philadelphia <clears throat> comes from two Greek words. Phileo, which means what? Everybody knows. Love. And adrophos, which is the Greek word for brother. Right. Brotherly love is what it means when you put it together. The city was named for its founder, Italus II, who was the Greek king of Pergamos. And he lived in the middle of the 2nd century B.C., before Christ. Now, because of his deep commitment and his love for his brother, Eumenes, he received the title of Italus Philadelphus, which means Italus 
who had great love for his brother. So that's where the city derived its name from its founder, who had great personal love for his own brother. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, the city was located about 28 miles southeast of Sardis. You see it circled there. And it was on an 800-foot rise in the Cogamus Valley. Philadelphia was located on a very strategic place on the Roman road. The Roman road went from Rome to the east, to the Orient. And uh, it was located in a very strategic place because the upper plateau of Asia, remember we're talking about Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, where these seven churches are lo- were located, but just behind Philadelphia was what's considered Asia, not Asia Minor. And so Philadelphia was really a door amid the mountains. She was actually referred to as the gateway to the east. Consequently, this city, this particular city, could easily understand how just a little strength, would you look at verse 8? How just a little strength, is what the Lord says she has, in a narrow valley corridor could hold back an army because this is how she was strategically located. So she could understand how a little strength could hold back a mighty army if it was in a narrow valley corridor, which is where she was located. To the Church of Philadelphia, it was also appropriate that the Lord designated himself as the final authority on opening and closing doors, since she was considered a door or a gateway to the east. Philadelphia was also known as Little Athens, because of the many temples which were located in the city. The people of Philadelphia, therefore, would be very well acquainted with temple pillars because back in those days all temples had giant pillars holding, supporting them. And that's also a very interesting factor to know in light of the fact of the Lord's first promised award to the overcomers of this city. If you look at verse 12, he promises them that he will make them a pillar in the temple of his God. So again, we see a you know, similarity between the city, what we know about the city, and what we learn about the church from this letter. Now, although Philadelphia was the youngest of the seven churches, having been founded in about 150 B.C., she was the last of the seven cities to fall to the Turks. She fell at the close of the 14th century. The good news is that there is still today a Christian church, a body of believers residing in modern-day Philadelphia. Philadelphia today is called Al-Shahir, which in the Turkish language means, I'm still having trouble with my transparency paper, absorbing my pen, but I hope you can see that. Al-Shahir in Turkish means city of God. And that name, again, is very interesting when we look at the Lord's another promised award to the overcomers that Christ makes in verse 12, where he says that he would write upon them the name of the city of God. So all kinds of, not coincidences here, but purposeful divine Um, connections. The name of the city today means city of God. Of course, their God is Allah, and he's not the same as Jehovah, the true God. 
Al-Shahir today has a population, I couldn't find a real current statistic, but somewhere around 20,000 people with about 500 or so claiming to be Christians. And, you know, whether they're truly Christians or not, only the Lord knows. But still, to have 500 in this little city claiming to be Christians is a pretty amazing fact in a country that is 98 to 99% Muslim. It's interesting to realize that the only two cities out of the seven churches in these two chapters which still have any kind of Christian testimony today are the two which received no condemnation from the Lord Jesus Christ back in the first century when he addressed these letters to them. Isn't that amazing? That they're the only two, Smyrna and Philadelphia, which still have a Christian witness there. Now, the only major problem, really, with the city's location was that she was in an area which was very prone to volcanic disruptions, a lot of volcanic activity in that area. And also, she sat right on a geological fault, you know, so she was also prone to earthquakes. That's pretty dangerous place to be. So the people of Philadelphia were continually being disturbed by tremors and by earthquakes, and they would be forced to repeatedly evacuate their city so that they would avoid being crushed by falling rocks and also by, you know, the building material that their houses were made of. In fact, the city was completely destroyed by an earthquake in 17 A.D., you know, during the time of our Lord's earthly life, the city was wiped out. <clears throat> also, Sardis and ten other cities in that area were wiped out by that same earthquake. But the city of Philadelphia was rebuilt by Tiberius Caesar, and it was in that rebuilt city that the church of Philadelphia to, that we're reading about was um, then established. Anyway, the fact that this city was prone to suffering from earthquakes and the people were always having to evacuate going in and out of the city is another interesting factor in light of verse 12 where he says, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go no more out. That would mean a lot to the people of this city. It meant they would no longer have to leave their city. This of course is speaking about their new home in the new Jerusalem. Well, the land of Philadelphia was rich for agriculture, probably because of, uh, you know, lava from volcanoes made the land very rich. And because of that, she was known, the city was known for producing very, very delicious grapes. And what do you make from grapes? Or you don't make from grapes, but <laughs> what do people make from grapes? Wine. So... Because of that, Dionysus, the god of wine, was one of the gods worshipped in this city. But I thought it was another interesting comparison that the city produced um, good fruit, just like the church. You know, the church, will, as we study this church, we'll see this church was really connected to the true vine. They were really connected to Jesus. And because of that, they produced good fruit, just like the city. Now, Italus II, who was, as I said, the founder of Philadelphia, had intended for it to serve as a dissemination point for Greek culture and for Greek mm, religion and Greek um, 
the Greek language and Greek philosophies and education, everything Greek. He founded the city so that he could Hellenize the East because this city, remember, we said is a gateway to the East. Now, when I say Hellenize, the Greeks call Greece Hellas, H-E-L-L-A-S. So when I say Hellenization, they wanted to Greeketize the East. Um, This Hellenization process had begun with uh, the conquests of Alexander the Great, who imposed the Greek way of life upon all the people he conquered. So again, it's interesting to compare the fact that the city was founded as a missionary city to take the Greek culture and everything else associated with it into the East. It's interesting to compare that fact with the mission-minded church which was established here, there in that city. Also, the Philadelphia church prophetically represented the period of church history from around 1750 to the early 1900s, which was the missionary stage of church history, the time of the greatest missionary effort for Christianity since the time of the apostolic church. There were more Bible commentaries, uh, more Bible expositions, great writings, you know, books about the Bible written during this time than in any other time. There were more missionaries, uh, more preachers, great, you know, preachers that reached many, many people, evangelists, mission movements, revivals awakenings, etc. More were produced and originated during these years than in any other time in the history of the church. Missions really just took off and it literally went around the world in the Philadelphia stage of history as never before or at least since the apostolic era. And, of course, it reached further than during the apostolic era, you know, further to the four corners of the earth. Almost all of the great mission movements, um, the great missions, excuse me, were founded during these years. The missions of Africa and Europe and the Orient and South America were all started during this time. God threw wide open, he just threw open, the door to missions as it had not ever been thrown open in the past. Some of the great men who were born and who lived during the Philadelphia stage of church history were Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Isn't he the one who spoke the most famous sermon ever preached? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. If you've never read a copy of that sermon, I'll tell you what, it's powerful. Uh, William Carey, who was a shoe cobbler who became so burdened for the lost people of India in 1793 that he became the first foreign missionary. Also, George Whitfield, Adoniram Judson, I don't have a picture of him, Charles Finney, there he is, Henry Martin, David Livingston, Robert Murray McShane, uh, D.L. Moody, Andrew Murray, Jonathan Goforth. Isn't that a great name for a missionary? Jonathan Goforth. Oh, that was so perfect. Billy Sunday. That's another good name, Sunday. Uh, Hudson Taylor. Oh, I have a picture of Billy Sunday. He was a professional baseball player before he became an became a, um, evangelist. Robert Morrison, Robert Moffat, Moffat, Charles Spurgeon. There's Hudson Taylor. I'm behind again. 
Okay, here's a picture of Charles Spurgeon. Oh, and he is wonderful. He's one of my favorite. Charles Spurgeon to read his. G. Campbell Morgan. These are actual pictures. A lot of the things I put up here aren't actual pictures, but these are. Um, Harry Ironside. Uh, Cyrus Schofield, if you have a Schofield Bible, he was the one responsible for that. James Strong was another one. If you have Strong's Concordance, he was the one responsible for that. And on and on we could go. So that's what I'm going to say about the city of Philadelphia. Let's talk now about the known details about the church which existed there. And for this, let me read verse 7. Actually, I think I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole letter so we get, like we should get a, an overall picture of the whole letter that the Lord wrote to Philadelphia. So it starts in verse 7 of chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, this is, of course is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking through John, said, Write these things, saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth." Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name." He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Well, not very much other than what is written here in this letter is known about the actual city, uh, or the, the church which existed in the city of Philadelphia. We don't know, for example, who founded it. We can always speculate that Paul founded it, but we don't know for sure. In all of his New Testament epistles, the Apostle Paul never mentioned the church of Philadelphia, so we, we kind of doubt that he founded it. Uh, we do know, however, that because of her faithfulness to Christ and to his word, and because she did not deny his name, the Lord himself opened doors of opportunity for witness and service for her, for this church. So there is a sense in which the church at Philadelphia took on the characteristics of the city in which she was located because she became for the gospel message what the city had been for Hellenism, you know, the spread of Greek culture. The sixth church letter of Revelation corresponds to the sixth parable. Remember how we've showed the correspondence with each one of the seven church letters and how they correspond 
to the parables of Matthew chapter 13. Well, the sixth church letter to Philadelphia corresponds to the sixth parable in Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46, which was the parable of the, what, pearl of great price. The Lord had said... The kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and what did he do? He bought it. He bought that great pearl. You see, those who realized the, the value of the church and of the gospel message and its divine and its living power to save people, they realized that it was literally worth all they had, you know, worth all, selling all that they had, even some of them their lives, in order to take that gospel message forth to all the lands, you know, the people that were in darkness previous to this, where, you know, it, at least the lands where the Lord himself had opened doors for them to go. So there is a correspondence here with the parable of the pearl of great price. These people living in a missionary stage in church history, literally many of them um, sold all they had so that they could go forth with God's gospel message. Okay, let's move now to the description of Christ. Back in our outline, here's where we are. We've talked about the details of the city, the details of the church, and now we'll look at the description of Christ that is given in uh, the latter part of verse 7 where he says, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. What we have here for the very first time is a description that the Lord gives of himself which does not come from John's recorded vision in chapter 1. And I may have made a mistake. I, don't, I didn't go back through the notes or the tapes if I've ever said that he, every one of his salutation descriptions comes from chapter 1. I am wrong. So please correct me on that or correct it in the notes if you see it because here is an exception. He does not give a description of himself that comes from chapter 1 to the church at Philadelphia. Remember that vision that John had in chapter 1 of the glorified Christ was a vision of him dressed as a judge. Remember how he looked? He um, had eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. All of that spoke of judgment. He had a sharp two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun in its full strength. That was all a vision of Christ as the judge coming in judgment. However, to the church of Philadelphia, he does not come in judgment. The Lord, remember, had nothing negative to say to this church. Well, Philadelphia is a holy church. She is a holy. Remember I said she's the ideal for which to strive. She was a holy church. So Christ, in effect, is saying to her, I am he who is holy. Philadelphia was also a true church. So again, the Lord told her that he is true. And this is also the church of the open door. And therefore, Christ reminded the church that he is the one who opened the doors for her. Now, these descriptions, the fact that he's holy and true and he's the one who opens doors, show us then that whatever this church was, was directly attributed to what Jesus Christ is. Any success or any power that she had 
in other words, was a direct result of Christ's work in and through her. And that, of course, is also true in an individual Christian, isn't it? Our strength or our success success, or anything that we might do is a direct, only a direct result of Christ working in and through us. The true church and the true Christian are simply reflections of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in declaring himself to be holy, what was the Lord Jesus really saying? Who only is holy? God. So in saying that he is holy here, he's definitely declaring himself to be God, since holiness is an essential attribute of deity. As the Holy One, as God himself is described in Isaiah 40, 25, God is uniquely distinguished from everyone and everything else which exists, because nothing can compare to him. He alone is holy, truly holy, truly set apart, truly sanctified. He's not only holy in his character, he's holy in his motives, he's holy in his actions, he's holy in his words, he's holy in his works, he's holy in his purposes, he's holy in everything, every way. Now, since Christ is God, he has the right to call the believers of the Philadelphia church to a life of holiness. Since he's also the one who gives the power to be holy, because no one can be holy without his power, without him living in us, he can also say to this church, in effect, I am holy, I am holy and it is my holiness that I share with you. See, no church can be holy, no church can be victorious over the world, no one can be an overcomer until Jesus Christ is the center and the focus of everything that goes on in that church or in that individual Christian. The Philadelphia church had done a good job in keeping separated from the evil of its surrounding environment. Not only there in the city, but the whole Roman Empire. It had kept itself separated. It had done a good job. It had also done a good job in keeping from evil doctrines because it held to the truth. Christ is the truth. And this was the second way. Not only did he describe himself as being holy, but the second way he described himself to the Philadelphian Christians was that he is truth. Notice he didn't just say, I speak truth. He said that he is truth. What does that remind us of? John fourteen six, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This church in Philadelphia was a true church, but she was only a true church because Jesus Christ, truth incarnate, was her source and her supply. Well, the third thing Christ said about himself to this church is that he has the key of David. And he is the one who opens, and when he opens, no one can shut. And he's the one who shuts, and when he shuts, no one can open. Exactly. Stating his possession of the key of David is his way of acknowledging his authority and his control. You know, what does a key symbolize? If I was to give you a key to this church, it would be giving you authority and control over the building facilities. That's what a key symbolizes. That's why they give a mayor the key to a city. So it's his authority and control to sit on the throne of David as the rightful Messiah king. Now, there wasn't a man named Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Oops, I'm behind again. 
<clears throat> I'll get you Eliakim in a minute. Now here he is. Now, this is an example of not a true picture. I don't really need to tell you that, do I? But there was a man in the Old Testament named Eliakim. And he, um, Isaiah wrote about him saying this. Uh, he's a, By the way, he's a prophetic type or prophetic picture of Christ. This is in Isaiah 22, 22. Isaiah said this, speaking for God, And the key of the house of David will, will I lay upon his shoulders, speaking not of Christ, but of Eliakim. So he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. You see, to Eliakim was given the key to rule over the royal treasury, the house of David, the house of Judah. He had the authority to open it, and he had the authority to shut it, as he deemed necessary and wise. So Eliakim was a prophetic type or prophetic foreshadowment of Jesus Christ, of whom Isaiah also wrote, saying, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. This time it's talking about Christ. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with just, justice from henceforth even forever. You see, as Eliakim had the key to unlock the treasures of the earthly kingdom, the Lord Jesus has the key to unlock the treasures of the heavenly kingdom and when he opens them nobody else shuts them and when he shuts them nobody else opens them nobody can open or shut them christ has the key he has the key to holiness he has the key to truth he has the key to opportunity he has the key to service he has the key to testimony and he has the key to salvation and nobody comes to god but by him why because he alone has the key to heaven. It's interesting. Not only does he alone have the key to heaven, he is the door to heaven. He's the key and the door. Furthermore, as we've already learned back in Revelation 1.18, the Lord Jesus has keys to something else. Remember 1.18? What does he have the keys to? Hell and death. So he's the possessor of all the keys. He's the key keeper, isn't he? Keeper of the keys. To the church at Philadelphia, Christ <clears throat> gave the assurance then that he is the only one who can open and shut doors. What kind of doors? Well, every door, really, every door. He opens and shuts all doors, whether it's the door to salvation or to service or to security, which we'll look at later this morning, I hope. So if this church had an open door to any kind of evangelistic missionary outreach, which she obviously did, it was only because Jesus Christ was the one who had unlocked that door and opened it for her. Well, that finishes the third part of our outline. Let's move right along here and go into the bulk of our lesson, which I won't finish this morning. I will finish next week and look at the declaration from Christ. In this section, we're going to discuss his approval, his assurances. That's a special category. We have not had assurances in any other letter. What do we usually have? 
accusation, right? See, there is no accusation here. We're going to look at his approval, his assurances, his admonition, his award, and his appeal. This morning, we're only going to have time to look at his approval and his assurances. And then we'll wrap up the other three next week. All right, let's look at his approval in verse 8. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. This is what he has to say to them by way of approval. Throughout the open, throughout the open, throughout the New Testament, an open door refers to opportunity for service, for ministry. It's the head of the church, the Lord of the harvest himself, who, of course, opens, as we've been talking about, opens doors for service to both his church and to individual Christians, or for them, I should have said. And he determines where and when his children will serve them. When he sets an open door of opportunity before us, before us collectively as a church or before us individually, then it is literally impossible for any man or any supernatural being, which would include our greatest enemy, Satan, or for any organization or any government or whatever else you can think of, to prevail against that open door. If he has opened it, nothing that you can think of can shut it. And the reverse is true also. If he shuts it, nothing else can open it. There is, however, the tragic possibility that we ourselves or that churches themselves, although given an open door, which is, you know, a golden opportunity for service, what I'm talking about here, same is true with salvation, but right now I'm talking about service, it is possible that that individual or that person may not enter through that door, right? All of us probably can look back over our Christian lives if we've walked for any time with the Lord and regret open doors of opportunity that he has given us that we have not walked through in faith. You see, it's the Lord's part to open the door, but it's our part to, in faith, walk through that door. Any man or woman, boy or girl, of God who's truly seeking his will in their lives, you know, really wants to do God's will, really wants to serve him and know his purpose for their lives, they will find, definitely they will find open doors for Christian service that he will place before them. But that individual has to be willing then to step through that door. I mean, that's very simple. But a lot of times that's exactly what we fail to do. The good thing about the Church of Philadelphia is that they had entered. I mean, it's obvious from his commendation to them that they had entered through open doors the Lord had placed before them for missionary outreach. And that's why he commended them. Now, what was it exactly about this church which pleased the Lord Jesus, other than the obvious fact that they did go through open doors? What made their victory in service possible? Well, it was that they had performed their works. Remember, he said, I know thy works. They had performed their works or their services for him with an attitude of heart that found its strength for ministry only in Jesus Christ. And it had placed its faith only in his word. 
understanding that its reason for existence as a church lay only in exalting his name. You know, the words, a little strength that we find there in verse 8 does not mean that the church still had a little strength and consequently she could yet function, you know, to some degree. Rather, it conveys the fact that although not a large or strong church, you know, it wasn't one of these mega churches, it was just probably a little bitty congregation, yet it was a faithful church and her faithfulness was her Strength, her little strength. However, the real source for any power or strength that, that she had, she understood came from who? From Christ. They understood God's words of 2 Corinthians 2 9, where he says, My strength is made perfect in weakness. They realized their own weaknesses and they looked to Christ for their strength. They knew that it was he who had opened doors for them and shut doors for them to to them. And he they knew that where and when they bore any fruit, it was he who had given the increase. <clears throat> Most Philadelphia type churches, you know, during the Philadelphia stage of church history and also most Philadelphia type churches today were and are characterized by small congregations, you know, just small little groups of Christians assembling together. And according to man's perspective and man's standards, these little congregations of Philadelphia-type Christians and churches would seem weak, wouldn't they? And weak and, and not very effective. This seeming weakness or this little strength, however, is how the Lord best demonstrates his own power and his own effectiveness. Because as the Holy Spirit told us through the pen of the Apostle Paul, when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. It is for his remnant, which is always, always a minority and not a majority, those who are powerless in themselves to whom Christ will open doors and keep them from being closed. Strength for our task never, ever lies in us. We need to remember what Paul wrote again in 1 Corinthians 1.27, where he said, God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. We're the foolish things of the world, but we can confound the wise, and that's so true. The wise man is really a fool compared to what we know. Because if we know this word, we have all the wisdom we need for this life and for eternity. And he said, God hath chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. No Christian, therefore, regardless of his or her accomplishments, has any reason to glory in anything except in Christ. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Why did God decide to choose the foolish things to confound the wise and the weak things to confound the mighty so that no man or woman could take the credit that they would totally have to give him all the glory that he alone deserves. Well, the Lord went on to commend the Philadelphian believers for having kept his word. And this tells us that this church not only believed in the word of God, but they obeyed it. That's what keeping means. You know, they, they obeyed it. The Reformation churches, 
by and large, you remember when we studied the Protestant Reformation, by and large, they did believe in the Word of God. They had great creeds. They believed in it, but they were not characterized by their obedience to it. Same is true with many, many Protestant churches today. They believe it. They say they believe it in their creeds, but they're not characterized by obeying obeying it, obedience to it. However, Philadelphia-type churches and Christians are those who do, to the best of their ability, keep or obey God's Word. The keeping of the Word of God involves far more than just believing it, you know, or reading it or studying it. It involves obedience to the revealed will of God, which we find out in the Word of God. The Word of God is a lamp unto our feet, and it's a light unto our path through this life. And as long as we seek to walk in obedience down the straight and narrow path which God's Word directs for us, then we will never find ourselves in circumstances or in situations in which His Word cannot guide us. Satan, of course, the old enemy Satan, does all that he can to corrupt God's Word. He uses critics to subtract from it. He uses large parts of organized Christendom to add to it. He uses liberals and modernists to replace much of the word with their own thoughts and ideas. He uses much of Protestantism to neglect God's word, or at least large portions of it. And the world, of course, which he's a ruler over, rejects God's word. They just write out, reject it. Because of these numerous pressures, not only without the church, but also within the church uh, today, especially to reject God's word or to distort it or to dilute it or to allegorize it away or to simply just ignore it. Because of this, many, many churches and many, many individuals have compromised on their witness for Christ by yielding to these kind of pressures. However, the scripture itself is full of all kinds of warnings against doing this. It says in the scripture, keep that which is committed to thy trust, hold fast the form of sound doctrine, earnestly contend for the faith, continue in the faith, grounded and settled. Even in these seven church letters, we've heard the Lord repeatedly tell the believers to hold, the overcomers to hold fast and to be faithful unto death and to not faint. When a church or a Christian begins to loosely handle the word of God, What do you think the soon next step is? The soon next step is that they are going to begin to loosely handle the name of Christ himself. Satan, and his name stands for his person. They'll deny his deity, they'll deny his virgin birth, and all that sort of thing. Satan always, always directs his attack against God's word and Christ's person, Christ's name. It's interesting to know that the greatest increase in false religions and in false Christs in world history began during the Philadelphian stage of church history. And these were a result, I'm sure, of Satan's effort against the effective evangelistic outreach of the Philadelphian era. era. You know, whenever Satan sees 
the church moving forth, he's going to really attack. And so consequently, we have the greatest rise in false religions during this same period of time. However, the characteristic of this church stage of history was that it refused to deny the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of the number of false religions and cults and false Christs which were arising around the world. They held fast to God's word in spite of the attack on scripture which was being um, which was occurring with the rise of rationalism we're going to look at some of these things the next two weeks when, before we get into our study of Laodicea which is the apostate church we're going to have to discuss the rise of rationalism and Darwinism and empiricism and deism and liberalism and how these things have influenced Christendom and why we are where we are today in the Laodicean era. <clears throat> well, because of the commendable attitude of obedience and faithfulness and reliance upon the Lord's strength, which the Philadelphian believers demonstrated, Christ presented them with two special assurances, which, like I said before, we do not find in any of the other church letters. He promised them, first of all, vindication, and secondly, deliverance. And uh, let's look at those now in verses 9 and 10. He says, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. That's vindication, okay? The second one is the second assurance in verse 10 is that of deliverance he says because thou hast kept the word of my patience i also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth the first one i want to look at is verse 9 and i'm going to skip a lot of stuff about this and hope that you'll read it in your notes because i really do want to get to verse 10 the church at Philadelphia apparently had the same problem which Smyrna had had with the Judaizers, whom the Lord referred to here as them of the synagogue of Satan, those who said they were Jews, you know, because of their bloodline, but they weren't really true Jews because they really weren't Christians, saved. His assurance here was that one day he was going to take these false religionists, these false Jews, and in fact, he was going to take all false religionists, those who are actually worshiping in what we could call synagogues of Satan, because if they're not worshiping Christ and the true God, even though they might use his name and think that they are, they might even be self-deceived, if they're not truly worshiping the God of the Bible and the Christ of the Bible, who are they worshiping? Yeah, they're worshiping Satan, so they are of the synagogue of Satan. Well, his promise is that one day um, he is going to subdue them before his true Philadelphian church. Christ is going to vindicate, you see, those who are truly, truly his by bringing their enemies who have persecuted them and who have grieved them and caused them so much heartache and tribulation over all the years. He's going to cause them to bow before their feet and not worship them because no man should worship a creature, but just to bow before their feet and know at long last that they are really the true Jews, 
that they are the ones he truly loves. They are the true followers of Christ and of God. Now, how this was literally fulfilled in the first century church of Philadelphia, we simply don't know. You know, I have no idea how in the world this was fulfilled where Judaizers came before and acknowledged the, um, the true church, the true Christians. Maybe they did. Maybe some of the Jews in that city were saved and they came to acknowledge the fact that these Christians in this assembly were truly the true Jews. But we do know from history past that this prophetic assurance was partially fulfilled during the Philadelphia stage of church development, you know, the years 1750 to 1900. Although really this prophetic assurance will not be completely fulfilled until the heavenly judgment when every knee will bow to Christ and learn how much he truly loves those who belong to him, those who were faithful to his word and to his name. But it is rather fascinating to learn in light of this verse that during the mid-1700s to the beginning of the 20th century, our century, the greatest period, this was the greatest period of Jewish evangelism in the history of Christianity. Literally, many, many Jews by bloodline, you know, those kind of Jews from their, from their blood, many came to bow before Christ and the truths which were proclaimed by his true church at this time. Jewish missions began, you know, all over the place during, during these years. So that is interesting in light of this assurance that he gives to them in verse 9. But what I want to really move on to and spend at least 10 minutes here talking about is verse 10, the second special assurance that the Lord gave to the Philadelphian church and to all true believers uh, was for divine deliverance. He says here, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Boy, that really soaked up. I'm sorry about that. What Christ, Christ put before those who are his, not only, you know, initially an open door of salvation and then a door of service, but now we find that ultimately he is putting before those who are truly his a door of security, a door of safety, we could call it. So there's a door of salvation, a door of service, and now he's promising overcomers or those who are Philadelphian Christians, a door of safety. The Lord is promising Philadelphia-type believers that because they are faithful to keep his word and not to deny his name, that he would keep them from the hour of temptation which would come upon all the world. Now, this promise has given rise to much debate among sincere Christians. Some have claimed that this was a pledge to the Philadelphia Christians of the first century for some kind of a divine preservation from an early earthquake, you know, or, or from Roman persecution. Yet there are a number of problems with that interpretation. For one thing, the Philadelphian believers were already living in a time of of uh, extreme persecution. Remember, this was written to first century Christians, and they were being persecuted severely by Rome. So this promise 
wouldn't mean a whole lot. Because already at this point, where was John writing from? He had been banished for his faith. He was in exile in Patmos. And Paul and Peter had already been martyred. John was writing here, you know, the Lord through John was writing about a time of temptation or trial which was yet future. Notice he says, which shall come. So that's yet future from the first century, from the time John wrote it. Furthermore, it was to be a worldwide time of trial that would come upon all the world. And that fact alone eliminates the possibility that the Lord was speaking about some local trial, such as an earthquake or a volcanic eruption. It was to involve all the world and all them that dwell upon the earth. Now, since the flood, since the time of the Noahic flood, the world has never known a universal period of Tribulation, you know, global tribulation. So this passage, as is agreed upon by post-tribulationists, those who believe the rapture of the church occurs after the tribulation, and agreed upon by pre-tribulationists, those who believe that the rapture occurs before the tribulation, that they both agree that this verse refers to the period of time, the hour, at the end of history, which is known as the tribulation. Okay? So if you want to write that in the margin, they all agree. No problem with that. Post-tribulationists, mid-tribulationists, even pre-tribulationists, well, pre-tribulationists, yes. They all agree that this is speaking about the tribulation. This period of seven years is to be the final manifestation of the wrath of God against the unbelieving world. This is what we're going to be looking at next year. In detail, it's the final and the 70th week of seven years as presented in Daniel's amazing 70 weeks prophecy. Daniel 9, 24 to 27. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. <clears throat> when Israel will be purged to the point where she is ready to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when he appears at his second coming. It's a seven-year period of time in which sin and lawlessness will break out in an unprecedented depth and degree under the reign of the who? Antichrist. As the Lord himself said in Matthew 24, 20 to 22, that um, the world has never yet seen nor will see such a time of great tribulation. Now the question and the debate then between post-tribulationists and mid-tribulationists, and I'll explain them in a minute if you're confused, and pre-tribulationists is, here's the debate and the question, will the church... The redeemed people of God who are alive during the generation which will see the ushering in of this hour of temptation, this seven years of great tribulation that the world has never had since the flood, will they pass through either part or all of this period of time? Or will they be delivered out of it before it actually begins? Well, this is... Needless to say, a very, very detailed study, which I do intend to cover 
at the time when we study Revelation chapter 4, which will be at the beginning of our next year, when we come back in the fall. I will have to deal with this, and I will. And I will be giving you many, many scriptural reasons for a pre-tribulationist view of the rapture of the church. At least 50 reasons, so you will really get your money's worth <laughs> for why I believe scripturally in a pre-tribulation rapture. But at this point, I want to give you just a few supports for why I believe, and of course you're entitled to your own opinion on this, but I hope your opinion comes from scripture. That's where we always get our opinions. They're not opinions. They should be based on scripture. Um, but anyway, I want to give you a few scriptural reasons for why I I believe that this verse here, Revelation 3.10, supports a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. To begin with, we're told clearly in Romans 5.9, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10, and 1 Thessalonians 5.9, that the church is not appointed unto God's wrath. God's wrath is not to be poured out upon believers, upon Christians, upon the church. If, if the church, therefore, was to experience any of the judgments of either the seals, the trumpets, or the bowls, there are seven of each, they all come out of the seals. If the church was to experience any of the judgments of any of these, seals, trumpets, or bowls, then she would be experiencing God's wrath. Because it is the Lamb, if you look at Revelation 6, 1, it is the Lamb, and who is the Lamb? Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who opens the seal judgments. And it is from the seventh seal judgment that come out the seven trumpet judgments. And it's out from the seventh trumpet judgment that come the seven bowl judgments. And who's the one who opens the seals? The Lamb, Jesus Christ. So the wrath being poured out upon the earth during the seven years of tribulation is the wrath of the Lamb. <clears throat> This is even said in um, verses 16 and 17 of Revelation 6, that it is the wrath of the Lamb. So if the church was on earth at the time of the opening of the first seal, judgment, then the church would be experiencing the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb. And this would be contrary to Scripture, which says that the church will not experience the wrath of God. Also, there's another significant phrase to consider here in our Lord's assurance to the Philadelphia church. He said that this hour of tribulation would come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. You notice that little phrase? Those that dwell upon the earth. Well, that little phrase, which you could call earth dwellers, those that dwell upon the earth are earth dwellers, without exception, every single time that phrase is used in the book of Revelation, it speaks of unbelievers. I won't tell you the, the places, but they're in your notes. But every time, that phrase always speaks of unbelievers. The testing, you see the wrath which is to be poured out upon the inhabitants of the earth is to be poured out upon who? Earth dwellers or unbelievers to try them. The other phrase which is very important in supporting a pre-tribulation rapture in this verse is found in the Lord's words, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. 
Now, if we were to think, and I hope I can keep your attention just for a few more minutes here. I hope I can get that all on here. If we're to think of the seven-year tribulation period as a big circle, then I can illustrate to you real easily the three basic positions regarding the rapture of the church by using just three lines here. A red line going straight through the circle, you know, right through its diameter, and then turning straight up at the end of the circle could represent the view, which is the view of the post-tribulationists. They believe that the church is going to go through all of the tribulation and be raptured after the tribulation. All right. Now, in order for the Lord's promise of Revelation 3.10, the one we just read, to support this view, the view of the post-tribulationists, then the Greek words tereo an, which literally mean to be kept in or to, you know, to be preserved in, would be what we should expect to find in the original Greek for this verse. However, these are not the Greek words which are used in this verse. Neither did John use the words tereodia, which literally mean to be kept through. He didn't use either one of those, wor those uh, words, Greek words. Now, if we were to use a black line and draw it to the center of our circle and then draw it going straight up, this would represent the view of the mid-tribulationists who believe that the church is going to go, you know, through half, the first three and a half years of the tribulation and then be raptured in the middle of the tribulation and miss out on the great tribulation. But there's still a lot of wrath that is poured in those first three and a half years as well. Um, there's another view which is popular today called the pre-wrath rapture, which would go, I didn't draw that in here, but it would go about three-fourths of the way or five-sixths of the way through the tribulation and then come up here. That's known as the pre-wrath rapture position. Now, if either one of those two views were correct, then we would expect the Greek words of this verse, Revelation 3.10, to be ero ek, which means to take out of. And this was what exactly what was used when the Lord offered up his high priestly prayer in John 17, 15, where he said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of ero ek, the world. However, if th this is not what, what we find in this verse, this is not the Greek which appears in the promise to the Philadelphian church. Now, the third possibility is that the church is going to be kept out of the tribulation altogether. And this could be symbolized by that blue line that I have going straight up right before the circle begins. Now, if this interpretation is correct, then we would expect that the Greek words would be tereo ek. I haven't used that combination yet. Tereo ek, E-K, which means kept from or kept out of. And that's exactly what the Lord used when he said, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil in that same verse in John 17, 15. In fact, this is what we do find in Revelation 3.10. I know this is confusing. You can read it over again in your, in your notes. But what we find in the original Greek is that it literally reads, I, also, I will also keep thee from, tereo ek, the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world. So if, if you have a Bible that says that, as my King James does, it has been 
translated correctly. The whole purpose of the Lord's promise is deliverance from the hour of trial. You know, not merely some kind of supernatural preservation through the trials of that time. As a matter of fact, you know, we don't read about any divine preservation of Gentile saints during the tribulation period. We only read about a divine preservation of the 144,000. And they are what? They're Jews. They're Jewish. Now, there are a number of reasons. As I said, there's at least 50 for why I do believe that the rapture of the church occurs prior to the tribulation. But in closing, I just want to give you a few just to whet your appetite here. And then you can come and argue with me later. But first of all, it is well worth noting that if the church was actually to go through half, three-fourths, five-sixths, or all of the tribulation period that one would certainly expect to find her, meaning the church, referred to at least one time during the chapters which deal with this period, which deal with the, the tribulation. And that's chapters 6 to 18, at least, of Revelation that deal with the tribulation period. If the church was going through part of it or all of it, wouldn't you expect to find her there Well, she's never mentioned. While the local churches are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3, as we've been studying, there is no mention of any local church whatsoever in Revelation chapters 4 through 18. Neither is the universal church mentioned at all. It's interesting to notice, too, that in Revelation 13, 9, you want to flip over and look at that real quick, quick, we have the same basic appeal which we've seen in each one of these seven Revelation church letters. And that appeal is, if any man have an ear, let him hear. But what happens there? It ends. There's something missing. The difference is that the phrase, what the Spirit saith unto the churches, is missing. And this is during the tribulation period. That little phrase is not added, what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, the obvious conclusion is that the church is not present. Now, this is an argument from silence, okay? That's what they call an argument from silence. But I believe that it is a very loud, silent argument. Now, also, as we've mentioned, the Lord Jesus gave himself the, um, the general outline for the book of Revelation. Remember back in... Well, let me, let me let you look at that one. I'm not going to talk about that. But the, the outline that he gave us in Revelation 1.19 is another clear indication of why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. But let me give you this one, and then we'll close. In our study of chapters 2 and 3 concerning the church age, that's what we've been looking at, right? The church age. We discussed how the last four churches all continue to exist until the time of the Lord's second coming. Remember the last four, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now it's interesting to notice, if we go back and look at those four church letters, how the Lord's own words to these four churches, these last four churches, show us his coming is getting progressively closer and closer. To Thyatira, in verse 25 of chapter 2, he said, Hold fast till I come. 
Then to the next church, to Sardis, he said, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I come. To Philadelphia, he says in verse 11, Behold, I come when? Quickly. Behold, I come quickly. And then look at Laodicea, a very famous verse, 320. He says, Behold, where is he standing? Behold, I stand at the door. And then you know what we find in the very next verse? If you look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says there, this is Paul writing, after this. Okay, after this, after what? After the church age. After the church age. He had told him in the outline, you know, to write the things which are and then write the things that are hereafter. After what? After the church age. So John says in four one, after this, after the church age, which ends with the stage of Laodicea, I, John, was speaking there, I looked and behold, a door was open. Where had Jesus just been? Standing at the door knocking. Now he looks and there's a door open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as of, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me which said come up hither and I will show thee things which might be which must be hereafter and immediately I was in the spirit and he was taken if you read on he was taken right before the throne of God now that experience which happened to the apostle John who was the last living apostolic representative of the church corresponds very very closely, strongly to what Paul told us will occur at the rapture. <clears throat> it says in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. What did John say? Immediately he was caught up in the spirit. At the last trump, John said, what did he hear? The voice, as it were, of a trumpet. It says, um, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. And then over in First uh, Thessalonians 4, it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And that's another reason. Comfort comes from being delivered from a lot of horrible wrath and trial, not from thinking, well, I have to go halfway through it or all the way through it. Also, anything other than a pre-tribulation rapture takes away the imminency of the Lord Jesus Christ because then you're not looking for him coming. You're looking for the Antichrist. The church is not to look for signs. Signs are given to Israel. This is all a big matter of understanding dispensationalism and the difference between when God is working with Israel and when God is working with the church, two separate times. But anyway, we'll get into that in a lot more detail. But <clears throat> this experience of John, the last living apostolic member of the church, certainly looks to me like the Lord Jesus was giving us a prophetic clue as to the time of the rapture by way of John's experience of chapter 4. Well, anyway, we'll get into all that 
in chapter 4 next year. Now, next week we're going to conclude our look at the Church of Philadelphia by considering his admonition or his warning to them and then his five wonderful awards that he promises to the overcomer. And then I do believe we're going to try to get into a little bit of a pre-look at Laodicea and talk about some things like rationalism and Darwinism and all kinds of isms. All right, I'm sorry.